Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us and pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of God's Word today. And now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, turn to Revelation all the way in the back, right before the maps, and join us as we walk through Revelation. All right, well, we are in session 31 of our look in the book of Revelation. We're concentrating on chapter 19. I've glibly titled this one, The King is Coming. Now, we've, we've seen what we, we call the, the, the harpazo, the rapturing of the church, but now we're going to see the final uh, conquest that establishes the millennial kingdom. And as always, before we get any further, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word, this message that comes to us from, from your desk, Lord, from outside, of, um, from outside of time, for this opportunity to see into what is to come as we look forward to the day when our faith is made sight. Help us to use this time as we dedicate it and ourselves into your hands so that not only would we learn more about you and about our place in your kingdom, but that we might learn to better glorify your name. So we come to you now asking for clarity of thought, for your understanding, and for, the, for your clarity of your will for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I've, I've talked about a lot about the setup of Revelation as we are beginning to draw to a close. We are in the section, of course, where Jesus tells John to pin the things that will take place after these things, meditata, after the churches, after the risen Christ. And we are, we are past the series of sevens, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath. But I want you to concentrate on that next to last star in the bottom set of sevens. That was the setup when the bowls of wrath were poured out. That was the setup of this passage of Scripture we're going to delve into today in chapter 19, where the armies gather at the place called Megiddo, otherwise known colloquially as Armageddon. So, the things, the last sections of Revelation, the after these things, we'll be talking right now about two different feasts and what I jokingly call the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. Next session, we're probably going to tackle by itself the millennial kingdom. I want it to have its, its own session because there are, there's a lot to that. Churches and denominations have split because of differing views of this one chapter of the Bible. So I want to give it uh, some decent attention and, and really focus in on some good scholarship. But chapters 21 and 22, when we're talking about the unveiling of eternity and the, and, and the final instructions and words of encouragement from our Savior, that may end up being its own session between the two chapters, depending upon how much I'm able to carve out from you from my studies. So, 
right now I want to touch base on some stuff referencing the past of Scripture, referencing the Old Testament. Revelation is a very Jewish book. Uh, <laughs> we have a habit of saying that there's a different, uh, different God from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. Well, Revelation firmly establishes the fact that the God of the Old Testament is indeed the God of the New Testament, but not in the whole wrath, vengeful, anger type of thing. Even though this does cover the day of the Lord, it's also the story of grace, forgiveness, love, and inclusion, as we'll see in just a moment. But I wanted to, to look at the promises ascribed to Christ as to who He is. We know Christ is Savior. Revelation here establishes Him as Lord, not merely a Lord in our hearts, as many are in the habit of saying, but He's also a coming political figure. And I mean this very literally. The Davidic covenant, which was established and written down for us in the second book of Samuel, um, 7, 8 through 16, identifies David uh, as the source of the messianic line. That David individually would increase in his own reputation and power, but on top of that, that there would be a coming time of peace and prosperity in the land when the land itself, the land of Israel, the promised land, Canaan, whatever you want to call it. Don't call it Palestine, and I'll explain why in just a moment. It's a coming time when they will never be troubled again. The temple was to be built by one of his descendants. Of course, we know that descendant to have been King Solomon, Solomon the Wise. The Lord would shepherd this entire family, but there would be a throne that would come from this kingdom and it would endure perpetually, eternally. It will, the kingdom will not end. This was a promise made from God to David directly about his family and his descendants. And now we get this passage, the voice of Gabriel the archangel, heralding a message of God to Mary concerning promises made on behalf of Christ who is to be born. Listen, you will conceive, we, we read this at Christmas and before Christmas, but pay attention to it. Luke 1, 31 through 33. Listen, I will get, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, Yeshua, Yehoshua, which means Savior. It's kind of a shortened version of Joshua, as we would think of it. 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him what? The throne of his father, David. The throne of David is a kingly throne. It is a political investiture. It is an actual kingdom. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I'm sorry, I went King James there for just a second, but it's, it's what I'm used to memorizing out of. But you, you can see what's on the screen there. The point is that the bulk of this message from the angel to the mother of Christ has to do with his second coming, not his first. He will be the heir apparent to his father David, who was the political figure who was king over Israel. So the promises attributed to Christ is given by the angel on behalf of God was that he is identified 
as the heir of the Davidic line, the kingly line. He is entitled to the very throne of the kingdom, the nation of Israel. And he is promised not just a temporary, uh, temporal reign, but an eternal reign as the supernatural and the natural come back together the way that they were always meant to be. Other passages in Scripture attributed to these promises include that this will be a political kingdom when, uh, when Israel on his deathbed looks around to his children and offers them a, a prophetic vision of who they are. He tells Judah that the scepter shall not depart from him until Shiloh, until the one to whom it actually belongs comes, and then it will have no end. Um, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, God promises that this will be a unified and a purified kingdom. We can say that that hasn't happened yet. When they were unified, they were only a kingdom again as the commonwealth of Israel for a brief period of time, and then they were conquered yet again by the Romans. And then the Romans decimated them. They were reestablished in the 1960s, not as a, excuse me, was it the 60s or the 50s? I'm sorry. I believe it was 69. But they were established as a democratic republic, not as a kingdom. It is a kingdom that will include Gentile citizens. We have that promise in Acts 15. And Christ will come in conquest, in judgment, and in purification. That is Jude 14 and 15. I know that up there it says June 1, 14 and 15, but Jude is a short letter. It only has one chapter. But when I don't do that, everybody thinks that it's Jude chapters 14 through 15, and they get all confused. But anyway, moving on. I also want you to keep in mind not just the promises to Jesus, but also this whole prophetic image that is in the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony. And we've talked about this before, so I'll make this very quick. There is a contracted family arrangement called the ketubah where the, the fathers of the bride and the groom respectively work out a redemption price to make this marriage happen and that the, the father of the bride has to agree to this match and has to approve of the family of the husband-to-be. There is the payment of the redemption price. In some cases, it's work. In most cases, it is silver. Silver, of course, being emblematic of blood. Uh, the payment of redemption, which is the more. And again, this is unique. In, in Far Eastern and in, in Western culture where we come from, normally if there is a dowry paid, who's paying it? The husband of the bride pays it. How many of you have seen that old uh, movie, the, was it the, uh, the Quiet Man? It was a John Wayne movie. All righty. Well, there's the bride's, the, the father of the bride's family has to pay, in Western culture, in the culture that we come from, uh, has to pay a, a tribute or a fortune or a dowry to the husband, and they use that money to start their life together. In this culture, the husband-to-be has to pay a redemptive price. He has to redeem the bride to himself. He has to pay for his bride. This is unique. Um, again, it's a Near Eastern uh, cultural idiom. There is a formal betrothal where the husband-to-be approaches the bride-to-be with a cup of wine and the bride price. If she accepts it, 
then they're officially married at that point legally. That's why Joseph, when Mary was found to be pregnant, had to legally divorce her, even though he tried to do it quietly. It wasn't just a matter of, you're not my girlfriend anymore, or in this case, you're not my uh, fiancé anymore. They were already, in the eyes of the law, married. But once the bride-to-be accepts the cup, she is set apart. She, she veils herself. She is no longer eligible for any other guy. In terms of Christian or westernized culture, we would call that sanctification. That's what that word literally means. The process of being set apart for someone or something else. But you didn't know that. Functionally, that's what that word means. Now, we understand that in church terms as the process by which we grow more and more into the image of Christ through study, through work, and through being engaged in the ministry of the local church. But in the old Englishy way of thinking, that word means, and the word saint along with it, means to be set apart, to be higher and away from something that is lower or something that is common. The husband-to-be goes to his father's house and prepares an addition, the room that they will start their life together. The father has to certify that the room that the son is building is in good shape, and then he tells the groom, go get your bride. When that happens, the groom and his closest friends get together, and they form basically a torch gang that marches down to the home of the by night, under the cover of darkness. They go uh, under torchlight, to the home of the bride's father, and they snatch her out. They basically ritually kidnap her and take her to the city gates. This is why she has to remain dressed and ready to go with her bridesmaids there night after night after night. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning because you never know when the groom is going to come. You see how that works in Scripture. So the bride is snatched out. In Greek terms, the term for that is harpazo. In Latin, it's rapture. The formal marriage ceremony, the nesun, is, is held at the city gate under a, 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 a ceremonially built tabernacle or, or tent type of thing, canopy called a hupa. <clears throat> then there is, they go to the father's house where the addition has been made, and there's the consummation of the marriage followed almost immediately by the wedding feast, and the wedding feast lasts for seven days. This is actually where we are in the book of Revelation symbolically. Once the wedding feast is underway, just as with um, Boaz, when he redeemed Ruth and the land of her dead husband back to the family, the, the inheritance is declared for the Redeemer, for the Goel, for the kinsman Redeemer. And then the two of them celebrate a honeymoon year together. Remember in the Old Testament, for a year after someone gets married, they cannot enter military service. Their job is basically to get together and to form and to maintain and to stabilize their family. So with all that prep work out of the way, we are in Revelation chapter 19. Two feasts and the fifth horseman. Starting with verse 1. After this I heard something like a loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! This is, remember, this is taking place after the final downfall of Babylon. After she has been judged 
and rendered desolate. Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous, because He has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His servants that was on her hands. The second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. So she's not just been judged and attacked, she is obliterated. And the city that was a great and powerful city will never again be inhabited. Verse 4, Then the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down, everybody who was around the throne of God, in other words, fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Remember, Amen meaning so be it, or thus say we all. Verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all of his servants, and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters. Have, have you ever been in a stadium where there's a few thousand people and something happens and all of them start to clap and cheer? It starts out sounding like a small trickle, and then it just builds and builds and builds and builds. That's what's happening here, but to a much greater degree. Like cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. I'd like for you to underline this verse in your copy of God's Word. What effectively we are being told is every good deed that the church, who is the bride of Christ, accomplishes. Every time that the, the, the ill have been tended to, Every time that the naked have been clothed, every time that the hungry have been fed, every time someone in poverty has broken that cycle and has, with the help of the church, emerged up to take their place as part of society, every time a good work is accomplished in the name of God by the local church, it is the bride of Christ adorning herself to present herself to her groom. The same way that a bride puts on her wedding gown. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. If you ever had any doubt about the book of Revelation, it goes out of its way to say everything that's going to happen is going to happen. Multiple times, anytime there's a narrator, Verily I say unto you, or, Let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, or, These words of God are true, as is stated here, that tells us, one, to pay attention, and two, this is going to happen. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, or to pray to him, aura in the Greek. But he said to me, don't do that. Watch this. Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus Worship God. Glorify God. Give obeisance and reverence only to God. Worship Him and Him alone. 
Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As Jesus himself said, the volume of the book is written of me. So there's, there's five shouts, excuse me, there's four shouts of hallelujah. Five comes into play later. Hallelujah is more akin to, to the Hebrew word. Alleluia is more akin to the, the Latin Greek word. Uh, same basic meaning, it's just a transliteration, just a different way to pronounce it because of the different cultures. Alleluia, Babylon has been judged. Alleluia, Babylon will never rise again. Alleluia from the 24 elders of God who, who represent the church, they're our proxies, so to speak, followed by or preceded by an amen, which whenever a group says amen together, that literally translates to so say we all. And the final alleluia, the final of the four, which means, which is followed by the phrase, basically, our God reigns. Notice this. Angels decline worship. Angels decline worship. And the reason I emphasize that is two of our largest denominations almost emphasize that. Giving obeisance not only to God, but to those who are trying to point others to God. Here there is, there's, there's only one time recorded in Scripture that an angel accepted worship and he got into a lot of trouble for it. That's what Isaiah 14 is trying to spell out. But the saints of the living God, the angels who are his servants, we're all together, the angels basically telling, we're all together servants here. Do not give me anything that should automatically be reserved for the Most High God. Honor Him and Him alone. But in this case, again, John was overcome with emotion. You hear, think about it from his perspective for a second. Here's a follower of Christ. He was there virtually from the beginning. He was one of the 12 apostles. He was a student of Jesus. He was the least of all of them because he was the youngest. But he was also called the disciple who Jesus loved. Jesus treated him kind of like a little brother. In fact, when he was crucified from the cross, it wasn't his own biological brothers that he entrusted to the care of his mother, him being the oldest son. Who did he entrust to care for his mom? He trusted John. Not any of the other apostles, not any of his other brothers and sisters. It was John who became the caretaker of Mary. He was a founder of churches himself. Brother apostle to the rest of them. And here he's in heaven after being tortured, after being condemned, after being in exile in Patmos. Here he is standing close to the throne room of the universe. And he's seeing the saints of the Old Testament covenant and all of the church that will come in the future. There are close to 2 billion Christians on the planet right now. Add every other Christian who has ever lived, who's been saved by grace, throughout the 2,000 years of the church. And that's how many people he's, he's hearing from right now. He is seeing the church that he helped to grow. Rise up and pray, give glory to God all at once.
Can you imagine how flooded with emotion he was? The reason he suffered, the reason he was tortured, the reason he was almost killed. And he gets to see his grandchildren in the faith, all of them, the billions that there are, stand up and give glory to God all at once, singing praises to his holy name. And he falls to his knees. But he falls in front of an angel. And he's, uh, my interpretation of this passage, and there's a lot of different ones. This is the way I read it. I'll give, uh, you all have the freedom to interpret how you will. I don't think he was worshiping the angel as he would worship God because he was still an Old Testament Jew in the New Testament era. But I think that he was, he was reverencing, he was, he was overcome with emotion. And he was on his knees and his face praising, I think, the angel for, for letting him see this. And the angel's like, no, not even this. All praise, all honor, all glory. Give none to me, it all goes to the throne. Are you with me so far? Anyway, that's, that's my interpretation, just trying to, to see things through the apostles' eyes. There's also a couple of other passages in there that detail other uh, admonitions as to the angel and to their, uh, their role in proper worship. But anyway, a couple of notes on this passage I want you to take down. First of all, the number four, we saw four hallelujahs. It holds the prophetic significance of creation because on day four, that's when the material world was completed. All creation, if you interpret this prophetically, all creation gives glory to God. Also, this is the last place in the book of Revelation where we, give, uh, where we hear about the 24 elders. They exit the scene from this point on. All that we hear about regarding the church from this point on is referred to as the bride of Christ. I think that's interesting. So anyway... The bride of Christ, first identified by John the... Actually, it was the groom who was first identified by John the Baptist in John's Gospel, chapter 3. The bride was purchased and cleansed by the blood of Christ. We hear that in Ephesians, chapter 5. The covenant was given in the taking of the cup. As explained by the Apostle Paul, it happens in the Gospels, but it's explained for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. We are told that Christ has left us to prepare a place for us in John's Gospel, chapter 14. Uh, the church, in this passage where the Pharisees are picking on Jesus because his followers don't fast, and he says the bride doesn't fast, or basically the party doesn't fast while the bride's in the midst, or the, for the groom, excuse me, is in the midst of them. But they will fast when he departs. So there's a time of fasting and work while the bridegroom is preparing the place in the Father's house for the bride. In that time, the bride is clothing herself with righteous deeds, which is what we just read. The church is presented as a virgin bride in 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 2. This is... This is the idea. Now, has the church always been faithful throughout her history? The uh, a little episode in our history, the Sullivan Indulgences comes to mind. Uh, 
prayers to the saints, the veneration of the saints, uh, worshiping uh, uh, saint cults come to mind, uh, different other things such as the crusades come to mind. The only reason the church will be presented as a virgin to her Lord is because he has washed her white as snow with the cost of her own of his own blood. We've read about the church being taken by Christ in the Arpazzo in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're about ready to read about the wedding feast of the Lamb. We just heard the introduction of it in, Revel- in uh, verse 9. In a couple of verses, we'll hear about the claiming of the kingdom. And in chapter 21, we'll see the new home of all of the believers, the new home of the kingdom in the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the old heaven in Revelation 21. Do you see how the two images work together? Now, the Jewish um, wedding, that structure was designed, if you ask the rabbis, it was meant to be a reflection of of Jacob well good grief the bride of Jacob who he loved more than life itself book of Genesis Jacob who was Israel loved Rachel I'm sorry but it's supposed to be a reflection of Jacob's flight with Rachel out of, uh, of her father's house, out of Haman's territory. And while that prophetic image does work in that, it's a, mere, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dark echo of the bride of Christ, as we've seen here. Something I also want to call to your attention, this is an addendum on the back of your notes. There are seven Gentile brides in all of Scripture. Uh, the Jewish people never really coming into their own <clears throat> until Abraham, who was declared the first Jew or the first Hebrew. There was, of course, Eve, the wife of Adam, mother of all living. There was Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, the mother of Israel. There was Azanath, who was the Egyptian wife of Joseph, who became the mother of the forerunners of the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. There was Zephorah, the wife of Moses. There was Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, who was the wife of Salmon, who was the mother of Boaz. There was Ruth, who was the wife of Boaz, mother of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. And the last Gentile bride that we can infer in all of Scripture is us, the church, which comes from the nations and yet is grafted onto the covenant through Christ, grafted under the root of Jesse. Notice that five of the brides are in the direct messianic family, five being a prophetic symbol of grace. Isn't that neat? I'll move on. Verse 11, Then I saw the heavens open, and there was a white horse, and its rider after the, after the feast, Christ, the groom, the goel, the kinsman redeemer, the leverite husband of the church, is now, being, is now going to reclaim the land, reclaim his inheritance. 
Its writer is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were upon his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped with blood. And his, incidentally, the word dipped there is baptizo, from which we also get baptism, baptized, which means to submerge. So he, he wasn't just sprinkled with a little blood. And his name is called the Word of God, which is, of course, John's favorite title for Jesus. The, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. This is where, incidentally, we come into the picture. A sharp sword came from his mouth, and some of your translations, a sharp two-edged sword so that he might strike the nations with it. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. Anyone who's ever uh, listened to the battle hymn of the Republic, this is where that phrase comes from. And his name was written on his robe and on his thigh, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So before we get any further, I want to remind you of a little story about a rabbi who read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue of Nazareth and was almost pushed off of a cliff for it. This is the passage that Jesus read in his home church, if you will. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to, pro to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma. Now, when Jesus was in Nazareth, that's where he stopped. And he said, this day has the scripture been fulfilled in your hearing. However, after the comma, we also read, and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, and to give a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair, and he will be called, they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Isaiah 61, and I, I encourage you to read through the whole passage, the entire chapter 61, because it's all the messianic mandate. The whole passage is Jesus' mission. I'm going to pause right there because that's what we're focusing on right now. Excuse me. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. Basically, the kingdom will be restored. And not only will it be restored, but it will be the capital of a global empire that will never end. Isaiah 61. So this is the ministry of the Messiah in full. But its first two and a half verses, or its first, verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, deal with Jesus' earthly ministry. From the second half of verse 2 on to verse 11, which is the end of the chapter, we're talking about the conquest of the Messiah. The day of vengeance of our God. And it's centered again on the restoration of Israel, specifically the capital of, of Jerusalem, which is, of course, referenced as Mount Zion. 
This is echoed in Romans 11. The Messiah's job basically is to restore the kingdom and to make it the centerpiece of the world coming under the dominion of God. The fifth horseman. This is a fulfillment of the oath that he took in Acts 1.11. The completion of his messianic mandate from Isaiah 61. The final restoration of all of creation and judgment, I might add, of the creation to the creator. And he's identified again as not just God in flesh, but he's identified by the prophetic statement as the Word of God. That everything that we have been handed in the truth of God is made manifest in this one individual. White Horse is, of course, prophetic of victory and conquest. He is called faithful and true, which are some of the attributes of being holy, holiness and righteousness. That everything that he says and does is faithful to who he claims that he is. He cannot do anything. There's nothing that God cannot do except to violate his own nature and break his own promises. His eyes of fire, which prophetically speaking means that he sees everything and he's seeing them in a form of judgment. The crowns listed in this passage are diadems, meaning ruly crowns, not Stephanus, the overcomer's crowns. This means that Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, is the ruler over everything. He, he comes with the double-edged sword of his mouth, meaning referencing the Word of God, meaning this, the Word of God is going to be the, the standard by which we're all judged. I want you to think about that for a second. When you read Romans chapter 1 and 2 specifically, how Paul describes the mindset and the actions of a fallen individual that God has left over to their own reprobate mind. And you imagine that when the books are open, part of what that the lost are going to have to come up with is have you stood the test of Scripture? Have you been this definition of righteousness? Not your own. Not your societies. Have you lived up to this? And they're destroyed by the truth. He's given a rod of iron. And there's two different ways you can interpret that because of the word that this version translates as to rule. It either means that he's going to rule with a scepter of iron a scepter that shatters clay, which is clay comes from dirt, meaning us. That's also an idiom found all throughout Scripture, particularly in Ezekiel. So he's either going to rule with a scepter of iron, or he's going to shepherd with a staff of iron. I find it interesting that either one could be translated that way. Either one of those translations could be valid. Prophetic imagery, again. Um, He's being accompanied by the victorious, meaning us, also who have white horses, also who have white robes. But who does all the fighting here? There's only one person covered in blood. The rest are just along for the ride. It's by Jesus' power and His alone that the conquest happens. He has a name only known to Himself. And I'm sorry, I couldn't come up with anything except the reverence for the name of God, a name that was considered so holy that in the early days of the Jewish tradition, that when 
Please forgive me for this. When we, we say the name Yahweh, the letters Yahweh, <clears throat> those are the letter names, incidentally. That's not the name itself. It is said that there was another letter of the Hebrew alphabet that was actually destroyed, banished from the rest of the alphabet so that no one could accidentally, either from disrespect or, or accidentally, misuse the name of God. So the name, the, God's true name, if you will, His holy name, is something that has been kept only to Himself from the, from the time of eternity. Anyway, let's, let's continue on. He was proclaimed King of Kings, Lord of Lords, meaning that He rules over all. There is no one whom, barring the Father, that He's under. Who is coming from Edom? In crimson, this is from Isaiah 63, talking about, uh, this is actually a commentary in the Old Testament about this section of Revelation, and specifically about Jesus' appearance. Who is coming from Edom in crimson-stained garments from Borah? Who is coming and splendid in his apparel, striding in his formidable might? It is I, proclaiming vindication, Powerful to save, mighty to save in some of your translations. Why are you, asks the prophet, why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads a winepress? The Savior answers, I trampled the winepress alone and no one from the nations was with me. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury. Their blood spattered my garments and all my clothes were stained. For I planned the day of vengeance and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I was amazed that no one assisted. We've already read how John was weeping convulsively earlier on in Revelation because when the scroll was presented, the scroll of seven seals, the title deed of the universe, was presented, there was no one worthy to open it except for Jesus. He stands alone. There's no one else that can hold his office, his position. So he's the only one that could accomplish this. So my, and everybody was amazed. So my arm accomplished the victory for me. My wrath assisted me. I crushed nations in my anger. I made them drunk with my wrath and I poured out their blood upon the ground. It's interesting to hear that and to recognize that that's the voice of our Savior. But we've got to remember that this was a period of time when the very people of God were almost systematically exterminated by the coming world leader that we had talked about in earlier chapters. Verse 17. I saw an angel standing on the sun, and he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds fly, uh, flying high overhead, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of anyone both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast the coming world leader, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. So this angel who is watching Armageddon about ready to happen, he's basically saying in a very poetic way, you guys don't stand a chance. It would be like UK's basketball team facing a middle school. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war 
against the writer, against God. But the beast was taken as a prisoner and along with his false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and who, uh, those who worshipped its image and the signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Brimstone in some translations. Now I want you to notice that because that's a very curious statement. Because these two beings, these two human beings empowered demonically are thrown into hell, are damned while they're still alive. That's curious. And these are the only two individual human beings that is so claimed by Scripture. Verse 21. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider and on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of flesh. The Feast of Victory. And I hate to even use those terms, but that's the, the prophetic terms mentioned here in the Bible. The redistribution of political power. Basically, the saints who are riding behind Jesus assume the positions, assume the responsibilities and the, the regal authority of those who have been defeated at the battle. This is the battle before the kingdom is established, and I'm going to really quickly reflect with you on the second psalm. The second psalm is regarded by many Christians as being a conversation between the members of the Trinity. Now I want you to notice this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw the ropes, throw the ropes off of us, they say. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath. I have installed my king in Zion on my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. This was not something you could attribute to David. Because even in, in David's time, he hadn't even accumulated all of what would be regarded as Israel. He was the writer of this song. Ask of me and I will make the whole of the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. Note that. You will shatter them like pottery. That's where that comes from. So the nations are literally going to war with God under the, the machinations of the beast and of the false prophet. They're massing together in the promised land in the valley that we refer to as Armageddon that is the Megiddo Valley in, in, in actual uh, Israeli geography. We know in Hosea 5.15 that when they have acknowledged their offense under the pressure of the enemy, that the Jews at that time, the remnant that is still there, will cry out and acknowledge their offense, and Christ will return. That's how that fits in. The world ruler and the false prophet are condemned while still alive. Their followers are executed in judgment under God. And this is actually, this time actually takes place before the white throne judgment, when hell actually gives up its dead. That takes place in the next chapter, in chapter 20. Let's talk really quickly about Zechariah 14. 
Zechariah 14 is, is uh, a more thorough description of the day of the Lord. Where the prophet writes, Look, a day belonging to the Lord is coming when the plunder taken from you will be delivered to your presence. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured. Notice who is in control of the situation here. The enemy thinks he's in control, but who has actually lured them into the trap? Christ, God, is the one luring them to judgment. I will gather the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured, the houses looted, the women raped, half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight those nations as he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, feet will stand on the mount, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem in the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in half from the east to the west. As they were building the International Hotel in Jerusalem, which was, I think, tied to Pan Am, as they were digging the foundations for the thing, they actually noticed that there is indeed a fault line that runs straight into the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley so that half the mountain will move to the north, half to the south. You will flee from my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord God will come and all the holy ones with him. Does that sound familiar? On that day there will be no light, the sun, the sunlight and the moonlight will diminish. It will be a unique day known only to the Lord, a day without day or night. But there will be a light at evening. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea, in summer and in winter alike. On that day the Lord will become king, Yahweh himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will become a political ruler over the whole earth. The Lord alone and in His name alone. It's interesting that the book of Revelation can be found in the book of Zechariah. So clearly. All the land from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem will be changed into a plain. That's interesting. Because if, you, if you've ever seen a top, topographical map of Israel, it's a patchwork of mountains and valley systems. And according to this, it's going to be leveled off. But Jerusalem will be different. It will be raised up and will remain on its site from the Benjamin Gate to the place of the first gate, from the corner gate to the Tower of Hanel to the Royal Wine Press. People will live there, and never again will there be a curse of complete destruction So Jerusalem will dwell in security. The new capital city of a nation that will span this entire globe. A unification of the natural and the supernatural. When we get to chapter 21, we're going to see that God himself has created a city, a new meeting place, a new Eden, where the people of earth 
can stand in the very presence of God Himself. Any questions or comments? Anything you all want to raise up before we dismiss? If not, then for session 32, go ahead and read Revelation chapter 20. I want you to think about these things. What parallels, most of you were with me when I went through the Torah books. What parallels do you see from what you read in Revelation 20 to the Old Testament? Do you think in reading that chapter for yourself that the reign of Christ will actually be a millennium, will actually be 1,000 years? As always, journal down what thoughts occur to you as well as your questions, and share them with the people that you're studying along with. Please continue to have those conversations because we learn better. We learn best as we sharpen each other. And all God's people said, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that you've given us that, Lord, we are among those that will be following after you on this day that those that have killed your saints, that those that have persecuted your people, that those who have brought bloodshed upon the face of the earth, for those that, um, for those who were intolerant of your love, even though you offered it to them, for those who cursed your name instead of coming to you on bended knee, for the grace that you so freely offer. Lord, we thank you for the promise that the day is coming when all of the dissension, when all of the wiles of the enemy, when all evil will cease, when our faith will be made sight, where we will truly dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We claim the promise of the blessing of this book that you have written to us. We ask that you would enlighten it within us so that we might take this wisdom and share it with many. That if it be your will, that we may be a messenger that delivers the message of hope to someone's heart to bring them into the kingdom before it is everlastingly too late. Please bless these efforts as we seek not just to study your word but to understand you and to glorify your name. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.